think we have something like 70 people signed up for the East Coast meetup so far. 69, baby. Nice. (laughs) You know it's going to go up from there, too, because it always kind of goes up a few ticks in the last day. Uh, Now, the question that I I have, is this uh, barbecue place going to have enough meat? (laughs) Well, I've been emailing them back and forth, and it's it's a little bit complicated. Like, we don't want to have to charge everybody, like, tickets and admission and that kind of thing. But, you know, a barbecue restaurant, they make a certain amount of food in the morning and, well, the night before. And once it's gone, it's gone. So yeah, yeah. Uh, there are a couple of things that we can do to help kind of mitigate that. Uh, you can pre-order on the website. So, you know, when you turn up to the spot, you can walk into the restaurant and they'll sort of carve your food uh, while, while you wait in there without waiting in the normal line. Uh, the other thing that we were thinking about doing, but we're not sure of the logistics and how it would work, is is giving them numbers beforehand so that we can actually make sure there's enough meat for everybody. Well, the way that would work is if people sign up on the meetup page. Yeah, so it is critical if you are coming, please make sure you sign up on the meetup page so we have a really accurate idea of numbers. And equally, if you aren't able to make it, please unsubscribe. Please say, you know, you're not coming anymore. That's really important, too. I love that we're running into this problem. Um, and this is just a great problem to have. We are thrilled to have this problem and we want it to be an even bigger problem. So if you can come on, come hang out with us on April 9th in Raleigh, North Carolina, uh, we have, uh, all the details at meetup.com slash Jupiter broadcasting. And don't worry, we're going to bring some snacks too. So, and they're not going to be meat snacks. So if you're not a meat eater, there will be something for you. Yeah. Well, I think we're bringing Brent with us. So we've at least got to take care of him, right? Right. He'll be our uh, vegan advocate. You know, he always yeah. stands up for the non-meat eaters because he's about the only one in our crowd. <laughs> so I was browsing the old Hacker News the other day and I came across a, a Docker.com blog post about a speed boost achievement for Docker desktop in 4.6. This is a fascinating story, Alex. Yeah, I think so too. And the performance of Docker desktop, particularly on the M1 Silicon, Apple Silicon Max has been... Uh, bad enough that I have literally stopped using Docker on my Mac uh, and I just SSH into a server and use it there and do all my builds on a remote server. Yeah. Oof. Okay. So, you know, we're going to talk today about how I'm looking at ditching containers. So we thought we should probably have a little bit of container good news. And this is a neat little happenstance. There was a discovery by the Asahi Linux team, Hector Martin, who's trying to port Linux to the M1, discovered that Apple's NVMe drivers are really, really great, except for a particular function called the F-Sync. And depending on how this is called and when it's called, it's horribly slow on macOS. So Hector discovered that, talked about it publicly. Um, they've submitted code upstream to Linux kernel to solve it on, on Linux, but it isn't necessarily solved on the Mac. And so a Docker user noticed this. We'll have a link to the GitHub issue and said, hey, by the way, this might help performance. I've done some testing here and I've noticed that if you use the same fix that Hector Martin found and you apply it, you're going to get this kind of expected performance increase. And, you know, just one of these great examples of community helping, you know, really improving a product like this. The Docker team took a look at the suggestion and said, yeah, you're right. Let's implement it. And and now they're saying some operations are like 98% faster. Well, they were pretty slow beforehand. So, I mean, that's, <laughs> yeah, they had room to go. <laughs> they had plenty of headspace to, to, to improve that. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. And, you know, as we record, the Asahi Linux team just released, I think it was, you know, a few days ago, their first alpha. Right. 
And I'm going to give it a go this Sunday. By the time people are hearing this, it'll be just like probably the weekend this episode came out. But uh, we tried it at first, and uh, there's a there's like some file system typical problems you'll fall into that just sort of trap you. It's like I don't know if you ever played that game Pitfall. You know, yeah, <laughs> you're running along, and all of a sudden you just fall into a pit. That's what it's like right now trying to get Linux on the M1. But if you solve file system problems, or you don't have any file system problems, and you're trying it on an M1 Mac, like a like an Air or a Mini, it seems to be pretty straightforward and Early benchmarks are showing pretty good performance, as long as you're not hitting that GPU. Yeah, you know what's interesting is uh, Jeff Gehling released a video this week talking about uh, his experiences with the new Mac Studio. And in that video, he did some power comparisons between a recent Ryzen system that he built, a Linux gaming PC, compared to the Mac Studio. And I couldn't quite believe what I was seeing, but then at the same time, having used the M1 MacBook Air and my M1 um, Max MacBook Pro, God, that's such a stupid name. Uh, <laughs> I just called the MacBook Max. Okay, yeah. Well, it's still a stupid name, but uh, yeah. who thought <laughs> Max Mac was a good one? Anyway, uh, I know. You, you know, there's just nobody to say no anymore, is there? Anyway, that's a bit of a, a segue, a bit of a tangent, a bit of a tangent there. <laughs> yeah, the power draw was a lot better, though. You're right. The like the the wasn't the Ryzen something in the 40 watt neighborhood. That's right. Yeah, yeah. The Ryzen was about 38, 40 watts, something like that, and the Mac Studio Idle was six watts. It's the same as a Raspberry Pi. Yeah, and in, in the context of Docker desktop too, you really gotta you gotta figure the majority of the use case is for development testing. And so uh, this F-Sync change doesn't really impact things much other than, you know, improves performance. I think, I'm not sure, Alex, but I think there's an argument to be made that it might be slightly less safe the way, the, the, the way they've changed this operation. But it kind of feels like, you know, again, for a development Docker setup, it doesn't, it doesn't really matter if it's slightly less safe because you're not running your production server on this thing. Yeah, it's a similar type of operation to when you make a bunch of writes to a USB drive, right? After you've written some data, you need to sync it and make sure that those writes have occurred and the file system tables have all been updated, that kind of thing. So as it turns out, macOS actually cheats, as you said, Chris. On Linux, F-Sync will both flush writes to the drive and ask it to flush its write cache to stable storage. But on macOS, F-Sync only flushes writes to the drive itself. Instead, they provide a... F full sync operation to do what F sync does on Linux. Ah, so you got F sync and you got F sync full sync. <laughs> yeah. Now on the laptops, I can see why they would do this, right? Because essentially the laptop has a built in UPS. If you yank the power cord on a MacBook, it's going to keep on trucking, right? But on a Mac Studio. Same on the iPhone, right? Same on an iPhone. Yeah, absolutely. But on a Mac Studio or some kind of other desktop, once you pull the power cord, you're toast. So this leads me to wonder what would happen to, you know, data integrity on a desktop Mac that doesn't have a built-in battery. Yeah, you got to figure Apple must have done the math, but there is that sort of cynical voice in the back of my head that goes, well, you know, they may have just designed this for mobile devices because that's their primary device now. And, you know, when they sell Macs, the the number one Mac they sell are the laptops, so they're probably designing for that. You know, like I, that's the voice yeah. in the back of my head when I hear that. And I think to myself, maybe APFS needs a few more years before I give it the old production grade for any kind of serious data storage. 
I mean, that said, I've I've experienced zero issues with yeah. APFS, and the migration was flawless. And I I really give them credit for the migration. I also give them credit for the really kind of low key but consistent rollout they did over three versions of macOS to sort of slice and dice the way that volumes are managed on APFS. Like they really executed well on that transition. I'll give them credit there. That. That doesn't change the fact, though, that we haven't seen a lot of production server grade edge case uses out there for years. Right. And I don't mean to be the old IT guy in the room, but for me, for a file system to really be production grade, safe for like server data, I want to see other people banging on it for a few years in production in the way I'd be using it. So if it's containers or or whatever it might be, you know, like, yeah, they've did they've done well. And I think that sets the ground for a pretty good file system that I can trust. But it's still like for it to actually be considered safe in my brain, I got to see people using it the way I'm using it. And I got to see that working for a while. Yeah. So with all that in mind, like I, I really hope that Asahi Linux works well in a couple of years time. And, you know, with the market is flooded with these cheap M1 Mac minis that are now obsolete from Apple software and we can all run low power linux apple silicon home servers now this is a mixture public service announcement slash app pick i think we've mentioned paperless on the show before it's a document management system that helps you transform physical documents into a searchable online archive and i've used this to great effect for my wife actually when when we're traveling and stuff back to england she does a lot of skype and zoom uh, music teaching lessons she's a music teacher and what we actually did was scanned all of her students' music into paperless. And then using the OCR that's in there, we can actually search for the specific bit of sheet music that we need when she's in England on my server back here, which is just super cool. So anyway, for the longest time, um, I've been using paperless-ng. I think it stood for paperless next gen. Not entirely sure, to be honest. I like to think the next generation. Yeah, like make it so. Um, <laughs> you got it. Um, a chap called jonas winkler actually took over the original paperless project which itself had been abandoned now in the last few weeks uh, there's been a new project come along called paperless-ngx next generation x something like that Um, and essentially what the community have done is the ng fork of the original code has seemed to go unmaintained there's actually a github issue which we'll link to in the show notes where there's a bunch of people talking about how much value they get from the software and also how much of a shame it is to see it kind of go to waste. But obviously open source being open source, you know, this discussion thread went on for, you know, the best part of two, three weeks uh, before eventually the community just went, okay, this Jonas guy, he seems to have fallen off the uh, the radar for now for whatever reason. So we're just going to fork this thing and call it NGX. Yeah, I sure hope he's okay. You know, I hope it's just a case of burnout. And it is good to see something like this. You wouldn't, this wouldn't happen with a commercial service, right? When a cloud company is shutting down for whatever reason, the product's just kind of gone. But when you have something that you can self-host that's open source software, there can be a escape hatch when the project kind of starts to fade. Now, this first version doesn't seem like it's introduced a ton of new stuff, um, they dropped support for Python 3.7, so they're kind of moving that forward. They've updated a ton of the docs and the scripts and the containers and the branding. 
they also had to drop support for Ansible playbooks, which is definitely a bummer to see that. Um, but they are hoping maybe somebody would want to help them support that. It seems like maybe it's just an issue of things getting out of date and the dev team not really having the skill set to manage it. So long as they continue to support Docker, you know, they're all, they've got my vote. Uh, what's interesting though is if uh, if we look through the the issues on their GitHub, there is one uh, specifically talking around moving the organization in GitHub forward. And uh, you know, so that right now is probably a really good time to get involved in the project if you're looking to do any kind of open source contributions. You know, clearly they're looking to improve the the project. Um, there is an issue in here, uh, sixteen thirty two, which again will be linked in the show notes, where they're talking about how. Uh, you can uh, make a, your membership official of the project. Um, it's 100% a community project, and they will gladly welcome contributions from anybody, member or not. But, you know, if you're a member of, of it, you can start to have a bit more say over where the direction of the, the project goes and that kind of thing. Interesting. Yeah, I, I wish them the best, right? This is one of those projects that I think is probably not mentioned enough uh, if you look into it, it's such a no-brainer. I'm I'm implementing this in the future, probably at the end of summer. I'm gonna I'm, I'm definitely putting this into action. And it's amazing. There, there's just no way I'm gonna do another year without this system. So paperless ngx, go check it out. I'm gonna, my plan is to have something set up by the end of summer, so that way, I know me a big talker right now, but that way at the start of 2023, I could just just use paperless from the beginning of the year. We'll see. I'll tell you where it's really useful is tax season. You know, you get yeah. all these 1099s and W-2 forms, all this kind of crap coming in, you know, from yep. all over the place. You just take a picture on your smartphone with one of the uh, scan apps and it then uh, you can share it from there with paperless, you know, like through the share sheet on iOS or a uh, similar thing on Android. That will basically then upload the file into Paperless, and then it does its uh, op- optical character recognition, OCR, on those files. And from there, all you need to do when it comes to tax time is search 1099 or tax or whatever it is, and you'll just find all the forms, boom, 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 boom. Uh, even cooler than that, though, is you can set up a bunch of ingestion rules. So what we did for the sheet music, for example, was we looked for certain keywords like bassoon or piano or that kind of thing. Uh, and add certain tags to each file. So in our case, we added sheet music as a tag, or anytime I get an email from Google with my Google Fi bill in it, uh, I have that send the email, automatically forward it to uh, uh, an address that will put it into a specific folder, and Paperless will scan that folder, ingest the file, automatically tag it. And so when I come to expense my cell phone bill through work, all I need to do is I don't need to log into Google Fi and then Spectrum and then all these different systems i log into paperless search for my little keyword to bring up my personal um internet bills and boom just download the pdf done that's so great i love it i really really love it i've been struggling with that very thing today that's what i was working on earlier today uh it's just been one bad news after another including the one that i probably heard from the most from the audience since our last episode, and that is that the Matter Group has announced a delay for the Matter Standard. Yes, that is the one announced in 2019 by Amazon, Apple, Google, and Samsung. The idea is to take Zigbee and make something that they could all use together that has a few base 
things they could all agree on. And of course, Alex, the industry is trying to uh, spin this. Like the NanoLeaf CEO said, quote, I think the three month delay might actually be a good thing. I feel that now that there's more certainty across the industry, we'll see unity at the time of launch. Yeah, it's a good thing because we can't get enough chips right now. So we'll just push it out and then sell the same amount anyway. Right. Sure. Yeah. I mean, it's his job to say it's a good thing, right? I got to say, I'm not too surprised. Um, it really is funny, though, because like anybody who like doubts matter is like they they took this news, man. <laughs> <laughs> and they just they run with it. And they like they 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 send me the link, you know. Uh and you know, I, I agree. My confidence is slipping, but it just it's so obviously needed that I I hope I hope I hope that this delay doesn't throw this whole thing off track. But it has sent me into a bit of a death spiral with my whole home setup now, Alex. It's just yeah. a disaster. Well, I don't blame you. I mean, we had that feedback a couple of episodes ago saying, should I wait for Matter or should I get into Z-Wave or Zigbee or whatever right now? And if I recall, the advice was, if you need something now, buy it now. And I think that advice has just been proven right. You know, if if you need a new smart home widget today, buy what's on the market today and hope for the best. Yeah. And for me... For me, it it sends me into this whole spiral of, okay, now I've got a problem because I've got a network of, you know, 30 Z-Wave devices and they are integrated throughout the automations and, you know, everything from temperature display widgets to um, scripts and automations. I have a Z-Wave device in there. And so the migration to Z-Wave JS, which I've tried in the past for me, went horribly bad. Nothing worked. I essentially had to just retouch everything in Home Assistant. And you know, one of those things where you load your dashboard and like everything's aired out and not working right. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that was my situation. Um, and so my thought was, screw it. I'm not going to migrate to Z-Wave JS. I'm going to hold out and just move over to Matter and I'll just low-key replace the devices over a year and call it good. And that plan came crashing down a couple of months ago when I discovered, or a month ago, when I discovered that the next release, the one that comes out in really probably a few days from the release of this episode, will uh, totally disable the Z-Wave integration that I'm using. So I'm kind of stuck in time with Home Assistant. And now that matters delayed, it's like a whole nother complicating factor. And I've realized that if I'm going to do this Z-Wave JS migration, that it's going to end up being so much work that I might as well take this opportunity to just redo everything. You know, have you reached that point where like, yeah, okay, this one, this one job is essentially so much work that just nuke and paving the entire infrastructure is only a minor part of the overall work. I feel that way every time I think about implementing a VLAN setup in my house. Like at the moment, I just run a flat network and uh, I think, oh, it would be cool if my cameras were on their own VLAN and then all my IoT stuff was on its own. But don't you think, I'm going to have to touch every device here and I just can't be bothered. Let's just stick it in a slash 16 and forget about it. In the doc, I see a very tantalizing little sentence that says, I have a new direction for dupes, the no container theory. I cannot wait to hear your logic on this. I want more control with this next go around. And I'm looking at what my options are with any kind of setup that I might redo. And maybe to to kind of help you understand, I should recap what I have now. 
So right now I have a couple of Raspberry Pi 4s that are running Ubuntu 2004, uh, right? The previous LTS. And back when I set that up, Alex, you could still get a setup script for Home Assistant where you could install supervised Home Assistant on vanilla Ubuntu, which I don't think they actually support anymore. But in my world, this is the ideal setup because I have Home Assistant running in containers, but a fully supervised setup. So I have access to the add-ons. I can get the hack store, all that kind of stuff. I get the backup manager, snapshots, et cetera, et cetera. But it's on an OS that I manage, that I update, because that's how I prefer to do things. That is no longer a viable option. And even now, it's kind of fiddly. Uh, Home Assistant will often say that I'm in an unhealthy state, and so it won't let me update add-ons or update the system, and I have to reboot, and then it's all of a sudden in a healthy state again, and then I can go about updating things. So it, it's, it's already not perfect, and I don't want to go the direction of where I was trending, which is an x86 machine that would be more powerful, ideally like a laptop that supports QuickSync, and then I would put Proxmox on that, and I would run Home Assistant in its own dedicated virtual machine as just an appliance, and I would just swallow the fact that I am running their OS, and I don't really want to do that. But you know what? It's fine, I told myself. But as the Asahi Linux team started getting Linux on the M1 closer to a reality, and I started realizing that a headless Mac Mini M1 running Linux could be a viable home server. And maybe I don't want to go this Proxmox route. Maybe I want to go a Linux host that is running these applications. But then I started thinking, what are my two main problems that I would like to solve with this next round? Like if I, besides performance, because that's a given, if I were rebuilding my entire home setup, and you got to think about this yourself probably sometimes, what problem would I really like to solve for myself? And I realized I would love to solve reproducibility. Because a year or two into this, I don't really remember how I have it set up. I have it set up in a way that it's pretty obvious to figure out. And I do have some documentation, although I haven't touched it in about a year. So I don't really have like a game plan to like rebuild this thing should a Raspberry Pi crap out. I mean, I could probably do it in a couple of days. Then the home assistant stuff would take longer. But, you know, it's not ideal. And I started thinking about what I could do to solve this problem. And I started thinking about your favorite, Ansible, of course. Perhaps, like, you know, this was an opportunity and my moment in time to learn Ansible. I'm sure you think that's probably a great idea. Well, you're not going to hear anything bad about some kind of config management from me. No, no. I think Ansible's a. A laudable goal. So instead, I did a hard right and turned from that and, and went down the path of Nix. And I, the reason why I got to Nix is I wanted... God damn it. I wanted... I know. I'm sorry. I know. We're so close. I wanted something that was reproducible from the metal so I could essentially just recreate the same exact setup by just dropping in some config files and building the system. And that's what Nix provides. And then as I start to use Nix and Nix OS, and I tried Nix OS versus just putting Nix on top of a distro, and really it's just a 
it's kind of like it's a matter of how far do you want to be able to control the system, right? Are you good with setting up a base distro and keeping its package manager going and then putting Nix on there and then rebuilding everything? Or would you like to build everything from the ground up, user accounts, groups, permissions, everything, reproduce everything? And that's the route I want to go. And that's why I went more than just Nix, the package manager. I went to Nix OS. And the Nix OS way of doing things is extremely compelling because you can, with very simple syntax, you can say, I, I want containers. and then. You build the system and you can test it before you deploy it and it's reproducible and it's so great. But you build the system and if you tell it, I want containers, it, it the Nix system figures it all out, man. It figures out the software dependencies, the services that need to be installed. You can make declarations in there for firewall stuff. It's a lot like Docker Compose, but for your entire OS. It's honestly how Linux should be. For a lot, for basically every use except for the desktop, this is how Linux should work. For every container, for every server, for every IoT device out there, for any system out there, and I'm telling you this as somebody who's used Linux for probably almost 25 years, this is how Linux should have worked forever. Now, Nix has actually been around for a little while. I'm just finally getting around to try it. And so what I have discovered, Alex, while using Nix, is if you can use the Nix package manager to install stuff and manage stuff, You've essentially documented your entire system with the config file and made it reproducible. So anytime you could like deploy Home Assistant through the config file or a sync thing or Plex or, you know, whatever, you can essentially run a command on another box and rebuild and recreate that entire system to, the, to exactly how you had it. And you can do that in a rolling way. So what happens when something isn't in the Nix way, the Nix ethos? Yeah, like an example of this actually is paperless NGX. Like, I don't think that's been packaged up yet, right? You can totally do containers in Nix. Like, totally. It is great for that. It's great as a container base, and it is great as a container host. And uh, you can do Podman and Docker on the same system at the same time. Like, it's really powerful. And um, I think a lot of listeners that are hearing me right now are probably thinking, no, Chris, just run the container on Nix OS. It's so much easier. And that may actually ultimately be the way I go. I may still end up running a few things in containers, but what I have realized is the benefit of the way Nix manages everything is that I can come back to a system five years later, and not only will it be fully up to date, but if it just has any problems, A, super easy to roll back, and B, super easy to reproduce, just like done how how often do you do that though F five years is your example often i mean usually i don't use hardware past that right so i'm touching on i'm rebuilding stuff every few years usually i mean speaking about myself i prefer to change stuff every couple of years so the chances of me sticking with the same system for five yeah. whole years is, is quite slim. Have you have you ever had like an Arch desktop that you install and then like three years later you realize it's the same install and you've just been reliably updating it? My Arch desktop actually is the one that I installed in London and it traveled across the yeah. ocean in a container, you know? So I, I love it, right? And it, when you think about how like some desktop Linux users, especially Mint users, they, they actually like reinstall every major ver for every major version. I know. It's ah. crazy, right? Nix is that for everything to the next level. And I can pin versions if I need to. I can roll back. It's the kind of distro 
that you can install it and and you can actually reliably let it auto update because it's so simple to recover. It's very compelling. And I'm I'm still kind of new to it. So I'm struggling to really put all of it into words, but it's got me excited in a way about deploying software on Linux that essentially Docker Compose did for containers. And I, I really don't have a major problem with these with running these applications in containers. But if I'm being totally honest, I do feel kind of weird about pulling down like essentially an entire software OS environment to run sync thing when it's just like, you know, some binaries and some config files. And I don't really need to run all of that in a container. I don't need to manage the network. I don't need to have like these virtual network interfaces. I don't need any of that. I don't need to like mount storage volumes or any of that. I don't really need it if I can still get all of the manageability benefits that I got with the software as a container, you know, being able to pull down specific versions, being able to stay current, being able to roll back, being able to isolate data and application stuff. Like I get all of that with Nix without actually having to have it in a container. That's compelling to me. And it also means that I could probably really eke a lot of performance out of an M1. And the great thing is, is there's already people working to get NixOS running on the M1 Mini. So, like, th- by the time I'm ready to do this, the work's going to be done. Can I play devil's advocate now? Are you yeah. done? Are, is is, yeah, is yeah. your so- soapbox... Uh... So, so, in summary, boo <laughs> containers. No, yeah, go ahead. Why learn a slightly unusual, bespoke deployment configuration system which is what nix appears to use just from a quick glance i'll be honest i'm not super familiar with it uh, and i really you know i have i have no real opinions let me preface everything i'm about to say with no real opinions about nix os at all i haven't looked at it super closely but devil's advocate time if i am learning ansible and i want to run it against ubuntu or centos or arch or mac os or any other system that Ansible supports. I've learned a skill that's transferable, not only between multiple different operating systems, but also different jobs. And and Ansible has been hugely powerful for my career, you know, as a springboard where I could start operating at a level that was much higher than actually if I'd just been doing everything like a caveman on, on the command line, right? Simply because people smarter than me had abstracted away a lot of the complexity. And so I look at, NixOS, and I, I see their configuration language looks pretty easy to understand. It's you know it's just a standard sort of JSON type looking configuration thing, right? And some of the things you said, right? You you wanted reproducibility, okay? So NixOS is clearly that because of the whole ethos of the project. But let's say you wanted in five years' time to redeploy a specific version of SyncThing for whatever reason it might be you could do that with a container on ansible you could go through your git commit history look up what tag you are running five years ago pull that down from docker hub assuming it's still there but the same is true of NixOS, right and then deploy that container and you've got everything as it was on that day in history five years ago and it's all in git so it's all version controlled and it's all reproducible i wouldn't be surprised if the more common way of using nix isn't Ansible deploying like a CentOS or a RHEL system or an Ubuntu system with the Nix package manager installed. Because uh, I think the other thing you, I don't know if you mentioned it necessarily in there, but learning Ansible would also be a much more employable skill. <laughs> you know, if you're ever looking for a job, it looks good on the resume. Um, 
So I actually don't think it precludes me from wanting to learn Ansible because I think that's still time that would be well spent. Yeah, I do. What I have kind of felt about using Nix is, um, okay, this is going to be kind of a controversial statement, but uh, this is the future of Linux. And this is a lot of what they're solving. It just should be done at the OS anyways. And it doesn't necessarily mean you don't still also need something like Ansible. Maybe for some small scale things, you know, you're, if you have a few boxes, maybe with something like Nix, you could get away without something centralized. But if you have any kind of scale, you're, you're obviously going to need tools to manage that. But I, I honestly think when I use Nix, I look at what Rails doing and I don't know how they're going to get there, but they're ultimately going to end up here. The, and same with uh, what Canonical needs to do with Ubuntu. Uh, and it's so in some ways I like using it because it's just. I think it's how I'm going to use Linux now for the future when I'm not deploying a desktop system. And I'm not even convinced it may actually ultimately end up using it for a desktop system as well, especially like a system here in the studio that's pretty static. I think the counterpoint to that is what Red Hat, for example, I know it well, are doing with the uh, Red Hat CoreOS operating system at the minute, Fedora CoreOS, if you want to try out the uh, the upstream version. Everything is configured declaratively up front, right? So you say, I want this NIC to have this IP address. Right. I okay. want these storage disks to be configured to this mount point, that kind of thing. Uh, that's all done through an ignition config file. You supply that to the VM or to the, the machine when it boots up, and it then configures itself based on that instantiation kind of request. And it seems to me like Nix is operating in a similar space where the, the operating system is almost like read only and everything is kind of given to it. And it, it's like this blank canvas onto which everything gets painted straight yeah. away. Nix OS itself managed to make base arch feel bloated. It's really nothing. There's not a lot going on there. <laughs> so what happens when you need to do a rollback, uh, for example, with my Home Assistant VM uh, running on top of Proxmox? If an upgrade goes sideways, all I do is roll back a specific snapshot, which on the ZFS backend storage that uh, Proxmox uses is simple. What's uh, How does that work in Nix? Do you, do you know yet? So you probably wouldn't quite go through the same scenario. So what I've, what I've run into so far is uh, there's two ways. You can, you can YOLO it and just build and deploy, but you can also do like a build dash dash test. And that does everything, and it'll, uh, you know, that's where it'll fail out. So they have this sort of switch command that you add. So once you verify that everything's sane, the config works, and like like what software building, when it fails to build, it'll give you errors, and it'll tell you where in the config file there might be a problem and stuff like that. Um, and then once you've resolved all that, you do the switch command, and it actually then deploys that as your production system. Um, but by the time you've deployed it, you already know everything works. So there's no... Uh, you can roll back, but there's it doesn't really you don't really need to because you just don't it doesn't it doesn't actually switch over unless it actually successfully everything works. Yeah, I mean that's interesting. Uh obviously there's a paradigm shift there that I I and you and we perhaps as a as a show need to go through and kind of figure out what the future looks like if Nix is is the way to yeah. go. Because you're you're certainly you're certainly piquing my interest as we talk about it. I think it is kind of for me it's a discovery thing too. Um, I'm thinking about making a Nix chat room on the Matrix server because I think we have some Nix nerds in the audience. 
Uh, just to kind of wrap this up, uh, uh, Alex, what I was thinking is uh, with using Nix, I would, I would f- keep things under very tight control. And then I think I kind of want to, and maybe you can tell me if I'm on the right track here. I think maybe I might stick with Home Assistant Core. So it's going to be a pretty minimal Home Assistant. I'm going to get like the minimum viable Home Assistant rebuilt. And I, I wonder if I shouldn't, and maybe you could talk me off this ledge, consider going with Node Red for my automation. So I'm doing all my automations in something separate, something else outside of Home Assistant. Again, kind of building these data silos. Um, and I'm also thinking, and I don't know how I would even manage to pull all this off at this point, but this is really the time to transition everything to MQTT. Like anything I can get over MQTT, do it, including like Z-Wave JS to MQTT and all yeah. of it. So do you think I'm on the right track? Is Node Red too far? Or is it just like, I don't know. I'm just, if I'm going to redo all this again, I don't really want to have to do it a second time. Node Red is brilliant for extremely complex automations where there are lots of uh, tra- if this, then that, and if this condition is true, then do that, you know, all that kind of really complicated, almost like programming logic. Um, where it's, I think, complete overkill is just a simple turn light on at 6 a.m. type thing, turn heater on at 6 a.m., whatever sure, it is. Sure, sure, yeah. Um, and I I tend to have in my mind, as soon as I go beyond like three or four or five kind of steps in an automation, I find the uh, Home Assistant YAML-based or the interface-based automations quite cumbersome, and that's when I reach for Node Red. I could see like 80% of our automations wouldn't need that. But there is a niche there, like if so-and-so hasn't been home for so long and so-and-so is this far from here, then turn these things off. And then additionally, I hope at some point I'm going to have over MQTT all of my power information from the Victron system feeding in. And then I would be also looking at solar input and battery charge level and possibly doing automations based on that as well. MQTT is just so lightweight and it's all you, it does all you need it to do in a really small little lightweight package. So I got an idea. So you, here's what we're going to do is you and Wes come out. We'll fly you out for episode 70 and we'll do a bro build at the RV. We'll rebuild everything over the weekend. We'll record it for the show. You know, we'll go do some fancy driving. We'll make a whole thing out of it. Cause I just don't know if I want to take all this on. Like we got to get Linux. We got to get Nix OS going on an M1. I got to, Get everything rebuilt. Got to get all of the individual Docker services restored. Got to do- migrate data. Then we got to get everything using MQTT. Got to get Node Red going. Just talk about my daily rate, huh? <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, maybe maybe I could pay it in like sandwiches, delicious burgers. Well, I tell you, roads what is in the good. Pacific Northwest. <laughs> There's a little Asian place just across the road from the studio, which yeah, I yeah. love that place. Oh. It is good. That's when Noah comes in to visit. That's the first place he and I go. And if we don't have time, and but I know he's coming, I'll order ahead for him. So I remember this is a very old Linux Action show where he was waxing lyrical, I think, about Panda Express. And you were like, dude, it's a chain. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> he does love his Chinese food, though. I don't know. We just think about it. We got to do something for episode 70. And I'm just saying you come out here. I mean, you know, JB will put you up. It's not long, is it? It's probably, what, sort of May, June sort of time. Yeah, maybe. We'll see. Watch this space. We need to issue a correction on the show. Uh, Samuel G writes in about the Argon Eon 4-Bay Raspberry Pi NAS case that we covered last episode. Hi, guys. I love the show. I think you might have read the Argon Aeon announcement wrong. You referred to the base model as $700, but I think that's actually an HK money. 
in US dollars, it's only about 120, which is a pretty good price if you if you look at it. So yeah, yes, thank you for is. writing in and letting us know that uh, we 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 can't do currency conversions. No, you know what? It was my bad because uh, I grabbed it and I put it in the dock, but I didn't note the currency. And so I just assumed it was U.S. because it was like, you know, it had been a couple hours because I'm a dummy. Uh, also, Samuel sent that in as a boost with a uh, value for value podcast app. That's pretty cool. Very and, cool. And uh, Gene sent, oh, I meant to bring it in the studio with me, Alex. But Gene, uh, Gene heard about the temperature issues we've been having in the uh, studio garage server room <laughs> over the summer. And he built a Wi-Fi sensor for me to put in there. That is so cool. I meant to bring it down here for you. Uh, so that way you could look at his uh, handiwork. So I'll, I'll show it to you uh, after the show. But of course, it's using ASP Home. So it should be uh, no nice. problem to get it working uh, with Home Assistant here in the studio. And we'll be able to monitor the temperature out there, which uh, I'm going to get this installed once we have the rack in its final position. So thank you, Gene, for sending that in. He sent that in a bit ago, and um, the plan is to deploy that soon. Yeah, we, I mean, if I come out there, we should do that and deploy, oh, the, yeah. deploy a fleet of sensors, not just one. Oh, man, if you actually came out here, yeah, it would be. we'd have a lot. There's probably like a dozen things we could do. Um, Bearded Tech sent in something so rad, and I say rad, ironically awesome. I got, I got feedback, though, she stopped saying rad. No. <laughs> no, I will not. Uh, anyways, Bearded Tech has written this piece of software called Fever. And you got to look at this, Alex. Go look at uh, go look at his GitHub page. There, it's a uh, frigate event video recorder. Have you seen this? Yeah, I only because you put it in the dock, and it looks awesome. I am going to be uh, adding this to my frigate arsenal pretty soon. Yeah, so it lets you store video independently of frigate, but it also has some Home Assistant integrations for notifications. Um, you can get frames in Home Assistant. It makes browsing it really easy. He's been working on mobile support, so if you got one of them internet phones, like Alex does, you can uh, still look at it. Yeah, you can look at your vidges in the uh, web viewer. <laughs> <laughs> like an I internet gotta, phone I, is a special thing these days. <laughs> I gotta give you, gotta give you crap. I guess I don't know. <laughs> you know, have you seen the prices of the Coral, like the little AI kind of USB sticks that work really well? Are they well crazy? With... Yeah. So I paid, I think, like thirty or forty dollars over MSRP. They're going for over two hundred dollars. Oh my gosh. Like more than double. It's it's kind of crazy. So uh, Bearded Tech has a GitHub page up with this uh, Fever app on there, and it's super cool. He's also got a Docker Compose, if that's how you, you know, if you're still using containers. <laughs> you know? Like a caveman. I, mean, I don't use containers anymore, but if you're still using containers, he's got a Docker Compose, <laughs> good to go. <laughs> you know, what's interesting is I see in his config file there, he's got a whole tail scale section. Oh, yeah? Yeah, he's been he's been dropping me hints about stuff he's working on. It's really good. And it's GPL too. So nice. Totes free. Yeah. So go check that out. We'll have a link to that in the show notes. Well, very good. I uh, I hope to see lots of you at our meetup on April the 9th in Raleigh. Uh like we said, please make sure you, if you are coming, you update the page so that we can get a you know accurate idea of numbers so we, we don't order too much meat or too many uh too many other treats for you. Right. And I want to put the word out there, Alex. I'd like you all to join me, including you, on March 31st at jblive.tv, 4 p.m. Seattle time, 7 p.m. Alex time, 11 p.m. London. We're doing an AMA, 
and any of the hosts are welcome. I know nobody's actually said they're showing up, but I, we're going to do an AMA. We're going to help people get set up on Matrix. And the big thing, I'm giving away some Bitcoin. I'm going to help you get your value for value podcasting app. So I've been talking about Fountain on some of the other shows. It has a little boost feature in there, but the hardest part is getting set up. So I'm going to give away some Bitcoin to help people get set up. So that way they can uh, try out boosting, boosting their favorite podcast creators out there. And maybe one day free software projects because the bearded tech who's working on fever is integrating lightning payments. So you can send a boost to his project to support it. I think that's so cool. So join me, AMA, matrix setup, Bitcoin giveaway. And I have a special guest joining me do a little interview on the live stream. So it's March 31st, 4 p.m. Seattle, 7 p.m. New York, 11 p.m. London at jblive.tv. And for all the ways to get in touch with us, you can go to selfhosted.show slash contact. There's a uh, form over there you can fill in and, and uh, get your message on the show. Pew, 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 pew. You can also hit us up on Discord. We got information about that at selfhosted.show slash Discord and the self-hosted matrix rooms at colony.jupiterbroadcasting.com. And of course, this here podcast is at Self Hosted Show on Twitter. As always, thank you so much for listening, everybody. That was selfhosted.show slash 67. How many times have you had this conversation with people, either, you know, internal with your internal monologue or with a parent or somebody else like that, right? Where you're like, I want to buy an electric car. And they're like, yeah, but the batteries aren't that green, are they? Sure. I've heard that too. When it comes to like, the mining or the, you know, disposing of. Sure. Sure. But I've also heard that lithium is quite recyclable. And what's really interesting is there's been a video released by Rory Reed. He used to host Top Gear sort of in that middle period in between uh, the Clarkson era and the Paddy McGuinness era in that, you know, the, the Matt LeBlanc era, I think it was. He's, uh, he's done a video for Auto Trader in the UK about um, Volvo cars have released a report uh, stating that electric cars are not as green as ice internal combustion engine cars um, up until, and you know, based on a whole number of parameters, anywhere from about 25-ish thousand miles all the way up to like 95,000 miles. And it can depend on a lot of different factors as to when that kind of threshold, you know, in the graph gets crossed. Hmm. I always wonder, too, when they are looking at this, are they considering the entire chain of gasoline? You know, the, the production, the shipping, the oil, all of that that goes into the carbon footprint of owning a car? Apparently so, yes, uh, which I think is an absolutely amazing thing to no do. No kidding. And it's really interesting that it's Volvo, of all people, doing this because they have quite a lot of uh, cutting-edge tech in, in terms of electric cars and hybrids and all that kind of stuff. Uh, I couldn't huh. see Volkswagen releasing this, for example. Wow, this um, is one of the key findings in the report. They say, quote, the production of the XC40 recharge Lion battery has a relatively large carbon footprint that constitutes 10 to 30% of the total carbon footprint, depending on the electricity mix of the use phase. So just, wow, 10 to 30% of that car's footprint just comes from the construction of the battery. Yeah. Regardless of how you charge it. It's not an insignificant difference is it but then what starts to play much more of a role throughout the life of the car is the source of the electricity with which you use to charge the car uh, of course sure sure yeah. so you know if you've got solar on your roof maybe it's going to be a, a greener car and you'll get to that payoff a bit sooner 
But you need to own the car for a certain amount of time, I guess, to make that viable. But in theory, it may be possible that electric cars could last a lot longer than an ICE car. Possibly, right? I mean, we don't know, although internal combustion cars have gotten pretty good at this point. Um, so well, it's going gonna, it's gonna to take 10, 11, 12 years, 13 years. But we're, we, we do see some Teslas that are getting up there in that age. Yeah. Uh, and their batteries, you know, they're, you know, down. <laughs> That's an interesting uh, point, actually, is we don't have a huge, huge amount of data like we do on, on petrol yeah, cars. Yeah. We don't have a huge amount of data on the longevity of batteries that have been made at this kind of scale yet. Right. Well, and if the, if everything in the car works, like in that electric car, the motors last forever. If the whole car works and every 15 years you replace the battery pack, I don't know. Maybe that. Maybe that's more sustainable. Because yeah, you, know, you think about where batteries were 15 years ago and where they're going to be in 10, yeah. 15 years' time. There's going to be some pretty significant innovation in that space. You would think. Yeah, especially if they have like an option to buy a recycled battery. You know, because that. I mean, that is an area that I think a lot of innovation could occur with lithium. Is is in recycling. Um. So it, also, say say you've had a car for 15 years. And they give you an option to buy a renewed battery pack that is at 90% capacity, but it's several thousand dollars less. You would do yeah. that. I mean, you got a 15-year-old car. I mean, I'd take it. I would, a, I'd, I would yeah. do that. Yeah. I mean, if I think about what I use my petrol car for most days, it's driving four miles to daycare, turning around, driving four miles back, and then doing my work day, and then doing the same thing in the evening. You know, so I... I do, let's say, 20 miles a day at most. Uh, I don't need a big battery. Like, I would love it if there was a car available in the States that was, you know, a 100-mile range or something, just a small little, like, city mini or something like that that was, I don't know, five, ten grand or something. That would just be, oh, mwah. Yeah, that would be nice. You know, they do say in here that when you consider the whole pipeline for getting gas into a tank of a car and then, you know, the emissions that it burns – that the rechargeable cars produce less, have a overall less CO2 footprint um, in that regard. So once you, after the battery is accounted for, like it is, it is less of a footprint to charge it, even if you're charging from a potentially dirtier power source, it looks like. Cause they say yeah. here that uh, the carbon footprint of the recharge has a total lower carbon footprint than for any ICE vehicle, even when you look at the different possible electricity mixes. Yeah. That's a good sign. So yeah. now we just need to push the grid forward so that way the sources that are powering the grid are cleaner and cleaner, right? Does this factor in geopolitical issues as well, like supporting uh, invasions yeah. of countries, that kind of thing? You know, there's, there's a lot of stuff that oil kind of enables that is very, very shady. Yeah, uh, instead which, now we'll just be lithium. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, it's it's just moving it's moving the problem yeah. around on the chalkboard, isn't it? I, I understand that. But. It's all right. I mean, you know, eventually the aliens will arrive and they'll look and they'll just have amazing propulsion systems. <laughs> you know what? We'll just use those. It'll be great. 